I mean, I, to say that I'm obsessed with this point, I think would be underserving the reality of, of it. <laughs> and, you know, I actually find it very challenging. Um, I think about this literally all day long, which is how to motivate everyone to fully embrace the tools. And so my current sort of philosophy on this is that for me, my own work, what six months ago was good now looks kind of so-so to me. Like actually, what six months ago was fast now feels very slow. Hello again and welcome. I'm Eric Jorgensen. I don't know much, but I have some very smart friends. And if you listen to this podcast, then no matter who, where, or when you are, you do too. Together, we explore how technology, investing, and entrepreneurship will create a brighter, more abundant future. Today, my guest is Sean Devine. Sean is the founder and CEO of XBE, who provides mission-critical software to horizontal construction companies. I didn't know what that was either. Horizontal construction companies build things like roads, bridges, tunnels, airports, stuff that's really heavy on concrete and asphalt and is usually funded by the government. Huge niche. Sean has fascinating stories about founding and building this company, but that's all for another day. Today, we focus almost entirely on how he is applying AI tools inside his company right now, today, as we speak, as we listen. And he's doing that on a few levels. As an individual contributor, he's the CEO, but he wears a lot of different hats. Uh, we talk about applying AI inside his product in AI features and how they use AI to build the product. And then how it's changing things in his hiring and his team structure. It's really a very thoughtful approach. And Sean's been thinking about it about as long as any operator I know. Every time we've hung out recently, this topic has dominated our conversations. And since so many of us out there are hearing about or even playing around with some of these new AI technology, but kind of yet to make the leap to do the work to apply it to our problems in our companies today. It's increasingly clear, clear that artificial intelligence will be a sea change that's on the order of mobile or maybe even computers themselves. And we're all working to kind of wrap our heads around it and figure out what to do. And I hope this conversation helps. This podcast is one of a few projects I work on to read my book, get the newsletter, or invest alongside us in early stage tech companies. Please visit ejorgensen.com. We invest in everything from B2B SaaS to nuclear startups, all looking for finding those 100x returns. The fund lets you invest your money right alongside ours into 15 to 20 exciting startups every year. We keep our fund minimum low so anyone can get exposure to high tech startups with minimal time and effort. I'm honored that many listeners, including today's guest, have already joined the fund as co-investors. Learn more at rolling.fun, which is linked in the show notes below. Accredited investors can invest with us through AngelList today. Our conversation starts shortly. Until then, here is this episode's one sponsor. And if you're pulling out your phone to skip this, that's a great opportunity to leave a quick review for the show in your podcast player. It really helps the show out. Thank you very much. Our sponsor today is Bread. A new sponsor this is a company founded by very good friends of mine, and you can think of them as your technical co-founder to launching your company. They will help you design roadmaps for your product, pick the right tech stack, they'll help you build MVPs, they'll help you do product research, wireframes, they'll help you even recruit and onboard technical team members, even co-founders. So if you are a non-technical founder and you'd like help getting your software product off the ground, 
talk to them. This is not your typical dev shop. These are previous experienced founders. They've been building companies together for a long time. They've been through the early stages before. They know what it takes to get it done and get it done well. And not only that, I know and trust that they have founders' best interests at heart. I think a lot of agencies know that they can get the cash and run, and these guys really want to help build successful companies. They have a framework and a roadmap for creating long-term success for your product and hiring, which I think is such a critical way to think about this. They're not trying to work with you forever. They're not trying to make you dependent on them. They just want to help you get off the ground and get flying on your own. I have a good friend, a repeat founder with a very successful exit uh, who just signed a deal with them to build the first version of their product for their next company. And so if you have a startup or a company that needs a very talented team of technical folks spun up today, please check out madebybread.com. If you reach out to them, please let them know that I, Eric, sent you. And if you have any questions about them, email me. I'll happily answer them or personally introduce you. Now with both ears and everything in between, please enjoy this conversation arriving in three, two, one. I can't wait to do this because I am surrounded, I'm digitally surrounded by Twitter threads of people who just like have been punishing GPT and coming up with like incredible, like quote unquote use cases and building giant threads about how you could use it. And I've talked to very few people who are actually digging in, in real operating businesses and applying AI today and changing how they think about their company, like immediately. And Sean and I have already had a few conversations. So I'm incredibly excited to like bring this to the world and invite some other people to sort of catch up with what you've been doing. I think there's a lot of people operating businesses just overwhelmed with like the new possibilities and not sure where to start. So I want to have you back to tell your whole story. But like today, let's just deep dive into like how you're thinking about all these new AI tools, what's going on, what you're changing. And if you don't mind, let's can we like set the context for like the company that you're managing and size, scale, industry, sort of that, that sort of thing. Sure. Yep. So, well, thanks for having me on. This topic has really lit a fire for me, both not just in what I talk about, but what I do every day, how I work with people, the kind of work I do, et cetera. So, but a little bit about me. So my name's Sean Devine. I'm CEO of XBE. I founded it in the beginning of 2016. XBE is a software company that provides horizontal construction companies with operations management solutions. We have one giant platform that goes all the way from scheduling and planning to dispatch and monitoring and analysis and continuous improvement and safety and administration. So kind of the entire physical operation of industrial contractors that build roads and manufacture ready mix concrete and mine aggregate, all the heavy construction that Biden's infrastructure bill <laughs> is meant to uh, support. So, so business is we- good for your customers right now. Business is good. Now, the 2022 inflation issues were not great because the huge increase in funding was absorbed by a similar amount of actual volume, right? Because the cost of natural gas went up two and a half times and the cost of liquid asphalt cement went up two times and so on and so forth. Diesel went up twice. So that was a little bit of a dent in things, but most of those have settled down now. And at least for the next three or four years, things should be pretty good. So anyways, that's what we do. The software platform is fantastic. It's super wide, super deep, has been seven years nonstop of one step at a time building it out. We work with the industry leaders across the country. You know, they run their whole operation on us. So we're, you know, we're pretty critical to getting the job done every day. And, you know, we take that pretty seriously. So that's a little bit about me. And the team size, roughly? 21. 
people. We're half in the US, half in India. It's always been that way since day one. So I was number one, Milland Alvarez in India was number two, and it's just been, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo since then. Yeah, we've, in- interestingly, I think we've doubled in the last mm, 18 months or so, and the team size has stayed about the same. So as a believer in leverage also, it's fun to be on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you'd love to see it. And, and this is, I mean, this is a bootstrap company also, right? That's right. Or minimally funded, not the typical kind of like venture backed tons of capital situation. I don't mind saying what the number is. So the amount of capital ever put into the company was $150,000. Wow. This is an incredible example of like my, my thesis that like software investing and venture investing are slowly diverging the capital necessary, including now, especially with AI to build a software company and grow it is just so much different than like the traditional multi round, huge venture scale stuff. And I think I mean, the main topic is like, how we think about getting maximum leverage out of the team size that we have now and continuing to grow that, right? So like, well, I, was, I forget the exact number. You said you more than doubled and the team size stayed the same That's over right. the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And now yeah, you think well, that'll I continue. Think that, I think that my story about starting XBE and the way that we've gotten so big and successful with a relatively small team, I think hints at what's going to happen over the next year or two. So I can program also, you know, I'm a, I, I didn't tell much about my background, but I'm sort of a hybrid business guy that can program, you know, also an entrepreneur. And I think a lot of my friends over the years have really questioned my commitment to being a good programmer. And because I didn't start programming until I was 32, I think, and, and was relatively successful career-wise at that point. And my reason for learning how to program now, you don't mind this digression, do you? Because I think it's relevant. No, please. I'm, I'm okay. very curious, actually. So my reason to learn how to program was that I had some very interesting jobs in my late 20s and into my early 30s, but was sort of forecasting the rest of my career and sort of seeing that my intensity, like the way that I worked, just didn't work great with everyone. And I didn't know that I was really interested or capable of changing that. And I said, you know, how... But, you know, what are the ways I could make maximum money, right? I need to find leverage and I either I'm going to find it through having leverage over people, which is what I had then. I was, you know, pretty high up in giant Fortune 500 companies. But that caused, you know, that required enough sort of political agility and kind of comfort. And I saw that even if I was okay at that some days, it really wound or really sort of ground me down. So... You know, leverage with people seemed like a shaky proposition. I wasn't wealthy, so I didn't have leverage from capital. And I could get leverage from other people's capital potentially, but, you know, ideally I wanted to figure out how to do things myself. And I thought, well, I mean, getting leverage through machines seems like theoretically the best strategy for me. And the only problem is, is I don't know how to program. This is at me at 30, say. I said, well, I mean, I, I was smart enough to program. Like I, you know, was one of the best people at Excel that I knew. And I'm like, well, if I'm great at Excel, I probably could be a decent programmer too. I'm good at math, et cetera. And said, well, ideally I would have started at 14, but second best time is now. And I'm just going to learn how to program so that I can create leverage myself. And so, so that's sort of why I got into it. It was a little bit clinical, even at the time. And it certainly sounds pretty clinical in hindsight. What was the path that you took to actually learning? Was it self-taught? Did you boot camp? Did you go back to school? Like self-taught. 
So I had a couple of problems that I tried to solve. In particular, at the time, I um, tried to solve the problem of sort of scraping a couple of websites for bill of ladings, bill of lading related documents for LTL carriers to build a, like a lead generation database. And it worked pretty well. And I mean, the code I'm sure was just God awful, but I had a real clear problem to solve that I knew money was attached to and said, well, if I can figure out how to do this, one, I'll come out the other side with more skill, which has leverage and more money, which has leverage. And so that's kind of how it got going. And then I'd enter hackathons on the side, like on weekends, I, I did a number of those. I ended up in a sort of strange series of events being the host of the Ruby on Rails podcast for a while. And <laughs> it was before I was that good of a programmer, but I was, was very much in the center of that yeah. community and interviewing all of the primary people in that community. And eventually over that time, I became a decent programmer, but I didn't really start that way. It's a way. great way to learn. Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, I just reached out, I'm sure you can relate. I reached out to every person I was impressed with in the community and invited them on. And over the course of couple of years doing it, all of a sudden I was one of those people. And so anyways, there's a long way to say that I, I put all this work mid-career into learning how to program. And, you know, I think at the beginning, I had no idea what kind of commitment that was going to be. And I got some skill and then my company Partage, the company before XBE, it didn't start off as a technology business entirely. It was a partial truckload brokerage that I started with a good friend named John Labrie. But Pretty early on, we saw that the key to differentiating, mostly at least, was pricing sophistication. And there weren't off-the-shelf tools available to do exactly what we wanted. And so I said, well, I've kind of been hacking on some programming stuff. Let's see if I can put something together. And, you know, again, it was pretty amateur hour, I think, in the execution, but got from here to there, generated some money. And then we realized, well, the transportation management system that we're using, it's not really sufficient to have customers book shipments themselves with our new automated pricing system. How hard could it be to build something? Well, it turns out the answer is pretty hard, but I didn't entirely know that at the time or accept it. And so I just started going. And, and anyways, it's just a long way to say that eventually after probably five years or so, I could program pretty well. And that brings me to XBE and sort of the bridge to AI, which is at the time, again, I think a lot of friends, a lot of family members are like, you're nuts. You know, you're spending all of your time learning how to, how to do something and you don't have to do this. Your career is fine. And I said, well, here's the thing. I'm going to start a new business, X, what's now XBE. And I've already raised my series A. I'm like, what do you mean? I had no idea you were even raising money. Why didn't you come to me? And I said, no, 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 I don't need it. I don't need the money. Because I already have the thing that I would hire. Like, in other words, you need a product manager. I, I already am good at that. You need someone to do the architecture. Well, I can do that. You need someone to rig up the initial front end. Me too. And you know, you need a CFO. Well, I went to business school. You need someone to do strategy. Well, I used to do that. So in other words, like, I had the skills that I needed to get things off the ground. And that's not to say that I'm, you know, the world's best at any of those. But I was good enough at all of them to get going. And instead of needing 2 million of seed money or 5 million in a series A, I said, you know, I think, I, I think through the expertise that's been gained, I can forego that, spend a little bit more time. But I was fine with that because I, you know, I think product market fit usually takes a minute, especially in these business to business sort of complicated industries. And so if you try to go, go too fast, you're going to 
break the feedback loop. You won't know if you have product market fit because you're sort of like powering through it with money. And so I was like, I'm okay with it going a little slower. And, and I have the, the skills, therefore, that I need to get things off the ground. So that's a long way to say. Go ahead. And, you're, and you were mid-30s by this point. But by well, the time you had like acquired all those skills... Probably late 30s at that point. Late 30s? Okay. Yeah. Or, you know, 37, maybe. I think it's an underrated version of the story, I think, right? Like the the headlines are often like 24-year-old raises $2 million round. But to your point, it's very interesting to have somebody who's like very broadly capable, sees the synthesis across all these different skills, mid-career, like height of their powers, starting something. And with the perspective that I think is totally right, like there's an extent to which money can't buy product market fit. Money can buy time and time buys feedback loops, but you can't necessarily speed up the feedback loops, especially with money. And you need a certain number of feedback loops. That's like the salient metric to actually like hit that breakout thing. And so more time, lower burn is better than a bigger pile of money that's disintegrating faster. Yeah, that's right. So I mean, if it was the case that you could raise money to go at a medium pace longer, I think it'd work pretty well. But the problem is you raise money and the pace goes up. And also you're going to close a lot of deals that you didn't have any business closing because you didn't actually have product market fit. You just were yelling to enough people that eventually some people say yes. Not to mention you don't need the money because you have money. And so you're going to, you're both going to pitch to people that may or may not be the perfect fit. You're going to price it in a way that is, you know, buying the business to some degree. And then you're going to mistake you know, that dynamic for product market fit. And so I've always been really suspicious of pouring sort of fuel on the fire early, kind of for the same reason I'm suspicious about taking too much medicine when I feel sick. And that like, I like to feel sick. Like I like to know that I'm sick when I'm sick. And I feel like when you're an early, when you're early on in a business, you're sick, right? You don't have product market fit. And I like to feel the pain of that. Like I like to- That pain is information. That's what I'm saying. You know, it's really (laughs) helpful to know where you don't have it. And just like if I took ad, if I took six Advil every day, every morning, I really wouldn't know how my body's doing. And I kind of feel that way about funding. Like I just, it causes a break between your experience and the sort of reality of the fit between you and the market. And so even before, maybe it was that reason that helped propel me to sort of learn more things because at least meant that I could do what I wanted to do, which is not raise money. Otherwise, I'd have to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, and you seem compelled to be, have a front row seat to the feedback loop. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. And having yeah. all that broad set of skills is like really helps you get there in yeah. every part of your business. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. Well, the reason I brought up this story is that this tells us what's going to happen now, I think, in that now many, many more people than was true seven years ago when I started XBE, have what I had then. So like have the ability to program reasonably well, have the ability to research a market, you know, understand the industrial dynamics of horizontal construction, can get into the mechanics of some financial management bit of the business, can think through their pricing strategy using the models that are out there right? Can do market research effect. Like all these tools that used to take money or directly or or expertise, which money could buy. Well, the expertise is now abundant. And so what do you need the money for? 
It's just going to make you sick. Like it's the money hurts you. It's just that like it's better than the alternative. But if you don't need the thing that money gets you because it's free, the expertise is free, then why in the world would one take it? So I, I am fascinated to see the next phase of how people start companies because I kind of think you'll see, you know, and maybe this is just me projecting and and imagining myself as the hero of the story and all the rest, but I think you'll see what I did, except now. I think that's extremely true or it could be extremely true in software in particular. Yeah. These businesses with like low capital requirements to get started, high pace of iteration and a very so let's get into the AI piece because I think a lot's about to change in software in particular. And I want to start with sort of your seat as the current CEO and operator of a good sized software business. Like there's bigger ones, there's smaller ones, but like you're a great sort of medium scale, like successful, profitable business with two dozen employees. So and and you're actively applying all these tools today. So let's see, like, where did you start your sort of like discovery? and usage journey with some of these AI tools? Yeah. So I, I think I think it's good to talk about this in two ways. First, me as an individual contributor, and then as it relates to our product, and then as it relates to our organization. So where I started was me personally, you know, in that I I communicate constantly. Right. So I communicate constantly internally and externally and a lot that's published to our customers, um, to our users, et cetera. And I think maybe the first place where I started to see traction was just using GPT-3 as an aid to content production, which is a very sort of, you know, practical, boring thing. But I was spending a lot of time, right? Because I, I mean, communication is leverage. That's that's a way to, you know, instead of having a conversation one-on-one, I'd rather have a conversation through content with thousands of people every time I write something. And when you say using, like just, I'm going to, I'm going to dig sort of like uncomfortably detailed on some of these, like, yeah, please. what does that mean? Is that having them draft? Is that having it expand from an outline? Is that having like Google Docs open in one window and GPT open in the next one? And like, going back and forth, like talk to me like in detail. So it took me a little bit to maybe get to this place, but I'll describe how I use it now. And just know that it's sort of evolved over the last six months. So I use GPT-3 now for ChatGPT as a collaborator, mostly. So I start at the very beginning with what my goal is, right? With the, the, the most upstream place possible. And I'll give an example from yesterday. I mean, even though, but all this was happening, you know, back in November or December when uh, ChatGPT came out. So yesterday I wanted to put out a newsletter. I had an idea, which just came from a conversation with a customer about how if they provided comments on good catch safety incidents, that like right in the moment that they would help reinforce the safety culture of their organizations, which would lead to better safety outcomes and improve culture. So I had this, I was, I was in a conversation with a woman named Amanda Moore. I mentioned that in conversation. I said, ah, that's a good topic for others. So I made a note to myself, like just those words, like, you know, safety incident comments plus, you know, culture. Then later that night, this is an interesting part of the story, I think. It was like 11.15 at night. And I'm kind of tired. I had the Warriors game on. I was just, I was in that kind of sleepy zone where I probably didn't have it in me to write a good newsletter. 
but I have this collaborator that's always ready, you know, and, and interested in helping out. And so I just started and said, I had this conversation. I should pull up the transcript, but it went something like this. I had this conversation with a customer named Amanda. In that conversation, I described the context I just described to you. And I said, I think that would be a good newsletter to send out to everyone. So here's my idea. I'd like to build the newsletter and have one section, which is the sort of big idea, and then a step-by-step how-to about what software features to use. And then I'd like to cite research that shows that this is good out in the world. And I don't know what that research is, but I'd like to figure out that. So I said, okay, that's about the outline that I'd like. Can you flesh that into an outline? And am I missing anything? So it replies. And it sort of builds out an outline. Now now I can kind of see what I'm talking about. I said, well, okay, I think we need a little bit more upfront about an example. I want to put an image down below so they can see. And then on the on the research, I think I want research now that you've sketched it, one piece about good catches and near misses, and then another about safety culture more generally. So let's take an aside and tell me all the research you're familiar with in those areas. Give me 10 examples. And so it wrote 10 papers that in those areas. And I said, oh, those two seem interesting. Give me the synopsis of those two. And it did. I said, okay, good. So we're going to use those two papers and we're going to insert those as our example. Now back to the outline. So the three features I want to use or highlight are inline commenting on the My Incidents page, safety incident subscriptions, and whatever else. So I said, so let's bullet those out. And then I said, okay, for each of those, I'm going to paste in the release note for each of those features. And then you take the release note and then you write the how-to, but it can't be more than two sentences. So, and this is all the basketball games going on. You know, I'm kind of, it's like I'm chatting with a friend. And if, you know, for those that know me, I'm chatty. So I will chat, 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 chat (laughs) about the thing forever. And I'm, you know, I'm coming up with ideas and I'm chatting. I'm saying, no, that's not good. That's not good. That's not good. And it turns out all these attributes that annoy people aren't annoying anymore. Like it's annoying to work with someone that's that opinionated and chatty and has ideas and feedback and that rejects 90% of, of the work that was just created. Yeah. Yes, that is. So it's really interesting you say that. So one of the observations I've had about using these tools so far is that most people that I work with don't tell it to generate lots of ideas. And I find it fascinating. So, so the norm is to say, like, give me the answer. That's not the right way to do it. What you want to do is like, like the example I gave before, like, tell me all the research you can fit into 2000 tokens, basically, because I, you know, I can read at, especially that kind of stuff. You can read at say 400 words a minute. I mean, you can read that fast. And so, you know, generate as much as you can. And then to your point, I'm reading it basically as fast as it's writing it. I find the two things I like. I say, chuck the rest. Let's go with this. That I think is so antisocial in terms of a work style that it's, unless you're disagreeable, like, like I am, you know, and like, it doesn't matter. You just end up working like that anyways. I think you have to learn how to be disagreeable. And it's been a pretty fascinating experience because it's sort of been very freeing to me because that's my norm is to kind of reject most of the ideas and want to generate more and then just go with the good one we come up with. And anyways, so it's a long answer, though, that explains 
on that one newsletter kind of what the process was like. Start with the big goal, give it feedback, sort of rabbit hole down every little part, zoom back out and take the parts and say, okay, now that, integrate other content that you have to provide context. You know, I mean, you can provide thousands of words of context per question. I think the new GPT-4, I think the input limit is like 25,000 words, which is like half of a book. That's a big, that's a huge input. Do you want me to be pedantic in this interview? Please. I mean, if you're, yeah. So the current GPT-4... Especially if I'm wrong. (laughs) Yeah. So the current GPT-4 is 8,000 tokens or 8,288 or something like that, which is like mm, 6,000... 100 words, maybe, depending on details, but it will be that high. So what they announced is that it will go to 32,000 tokens. And so, you know, four times the current limit. The current GPT-4 you can get if you pay for Pro is 8,000, and that's 8,000-ish. And that's two times what GPT-3.5 was. And I think it's actually very important to sort of get to know this because the context is unbelievably powerful. Like you can just shove everything you know into that context and then it will combine all the pre-trained information it has from the knowledge of the world plus all your specific content and holy cow, it is unbelievably smart. And that's about 8,000 words just for references about the transcript of this conversation. If we go an hour and a half, like that's about what the dialogue transcript would be. A lot of context. But that's a lot of context. A, a lot, lot of context. Of con- you could put probably your whole company's FAQ, internal or external, is probably, I don't know, mm. in the tens of thousands. So it's, a subcategory it, might be 10,000. So it's interesting you mentioned that. So, so we built out this feature called Hey Kayla. And well, this will get to sort of the second category of, of thing I was talking about, which is, you know, in addition to this huge list of, ways that, you know, I've personally leveraged GPT-3. Yeah, well, and now GPT-4. Wait, wait, let's finish the, like, I want to just like, let's end cap that. Did you finish the newsletter that night during the Warriors game? Like, how did that come together? What was the total sort of time investment? What did you end up with? Yeah. So yes, I did finish it and publish it like completely to hit send uh, or schedule at the very least. I think the total time investment was 45 minutes or so end to end from starting to hit publish. And the reason I remember that is I remember the game was, I remember the game was still going. It was about 1120 when I started. And I remember it was just past midnight when I finished because I had like sworn to myself I wasn't going to work late that night. (laughs) (laughs) And these are like half-ass minutes. I think you didn't quite go that far, but you're like, you know, your 1130 to midnight minutes are not your best minutes, not fully engaged minutes. No, no, no doubt. They were not. But the final product was, I should look it up. It was probably about 550 words, 600 words. So not that long. It was the format I said. It did cite two papers. It excerpted them. It gave the the step-by-step one, two, three on how to do it. It had a nice preamble. It gave one example. The writing was consistent with what we had done before. In fact, that's a good aside. One thing I've learned is I give it examples back to the spending of context, right? You've got this context to budget to spend. And so once I got near the end, I say, okay, now proofread that for any grammar issues or spelling, but I'm also going to give you three newsletters that are already published that are in our voice and are good. 
and just make sure it sounds like them. And, you know, very good at this. And so it reads those, it adjusts it, didn't make huge changes, but it makes changes. And that's not a huge deal to me because I wrote all those, right? So I'm good at writing my own voice. Now it's not good in writing my voice. So you just give it, give it examples. Of course, this means that other people can easily write in your voice too, which is amazing, right? It means our whole team can produce content that all kind of sounds the same, which is, is fabulous. Awesome. That's a great example of sort of the individual contributor communication scale and sort of leverage that you can get. I think you were starting to head down the uh, product example. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind, I have, since you put me back on track, I have one more individual contributor example that I think is more advanced that I think is, is interesting. And it ties back to the, like, how will people found companies in the near future? So I, two weeks ago, I was scheduled to go to Con Expo, the big every three year construction con, uh, convention in Las Vegas. It's exactly what you think it is. It's, you know, the $10 million setups from John Deere where you get to go and play with the excavators and all that. All right. So exactly what you imagine, that's what it is. Tens of thousands of people. So I was going there, but I was at my parents' house in Albany, New York, visiting them and my sister who is pregnant with her first baby. And it snowed as it's want to do in New York. And so it snowed a lot. And my scheduled flight was canceled along with all the, uh, the other flights that day. And I was rebooked like 40 hours later. Well, I couldn't go to Vegas then because that was sort of beyond the window that I was supposed to be there for some meetings and meant that my trip would be too short and it's difficult to get from Albany to there and there, you know, so I just decided not to do it. And so I was faced with, I had two days that I had scheduled that were now completely free. Now, one of them was going to take a bunch of travel and other stuff. So I really had one day, which was Friday, that was totally free. And so I said, you know, this is a very interesting opportunity. I am going to keep it blocked and I'm going to test myself to see just what am I capable of doing in a day right now using GPT-4 as my collaborator. And so there was a problem that I had been wanting to work on, which was the details are, are, we don't need to get into too much, but the basic idea is we have a trucking lineup in our software, which is, you know, imagine the 120 individual trucking shifts that need to happen in a given day and they're all around a city and they need different types of equipment and they're doing different types of work like some are on an asphalt job some are moving rock etc and they let's say you work with 50 different trucking companies some of them are big some of them are tiny they are in different places they have different equipment and ideally you would solve that optimization problem right to say well i can't violate any of my constraints i can't assign anyone more than the drivers they have. I can't assign them fewer than the amount that they're kind of expecting or else I'll destabilize them, so on and so forth. I can't put them on equipment or jobs that require equipment that they don't have, etc. And what I want to do is I want to minimize the mobilization distance that everyone's got to drive. It's a very complicated traveling salesman problem. That's right. I want to keep people, oh, it's that complicated, but it's like not, not complicated. So I want to keep people kind of close to home and anyways, this is what these, these dispatchers do. And for a while, I'd had it on my list to say like, okay, we should like write a solver that will solve this, this problem and propose solutions that respect all of the constraints that one has practically. And so, okay, so Thursday I decided, 
Uh, while I'm traveling, I'm going to do research about my approach on this. So I'm not going to really do the work, but I'm going to read about some things. I'll jot, jot down some ideas. I'll come up with some game plans, etc. like while I'm on airplanes. But my goal was on Friday, I was going to attempt to implement the entire solver. Now, I am not an operations research PhD. Um, I've worked in a couple of optimization software companies, so I kind of know my way around a little bit. But yeah, I don't, I haven't implemented a lot of models and certainly not that aren't, there are none that are like robust and commercial. But I thought, you know what? I know the topic well enough and I, and I have a very clear understanding of the goal and I can program generally. So how about I just work with GPT-4 like it's PhD that I used to work with? Like it's my PhD for the day. So I started at six in the morning because I was jazzed about doing this. I started at six in the morning and I said, I'm going to go as hard as I can, as long as I can, and see if I can actually get this done today. And it took me until like 11 or so. But in one day, I was able to build, and I built it as a separate, like separate library, built a library that could solve the exact, not a toy problem, like the exact problem that we're solving with sample data that I generated from, from real scenarios that could handle all the different types of constraints that could solve for the objective function that, that we wanted, that was fast enough to deploy in production in one day. And I went back and I looked at my transcript of the questions that I asked. And I mean, I asked, remember the exact number, I think I asked 180 questions during the day. I mean, like an enormous number of questions because I didn't know how to technically implement any of it. I mean, I started and I, from the very beginning, said, this is what we're going to do today. Now, let's design the linear program. Let's get the variables right. Let's decide what solver to use. Let's draft the program. Let's consider alternatives. Let's, I mean, the whole, figure out how to host it. I mean, there was the issue of I, I want, was I going to run it inside of our app or use some web service? I had to decide that. It required some system libraries that didn't exist on our production stack. I had to figure out how to get those installed. Like all these things that any one of them would have knocked me off. Like, or knocked me off in terms of it would have taken long enough that I just didn't have the time. Become a whole project unto itself. Yeah. Except none of, there wasn't a single moment the whole time where I had any fear of not knowing. Because it doesn't matter if I don't know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like the expertise was completely irrelevant. And that's, so I think that's a pretty good example. It's an incredible example. And, and it shows another sort of interesting counterintuitive thing, right? Which is like your first one was, you know, most people try to get it to get it, the answer right. Instead, the, op the correct play is like generate a ton of options, select the ones you like. In this one, I don't think people are used to asking 200 questions in a day. Like that is a counterintuitive way to approach things of just like firing off uncertainties constantly. But I'm curious, in the, all those answers, were you ever worried that it would lead you astray, right? Like you had enough domain knowledge to kind of know, to be able to vet what was coming back, but the odds that, you know, is correct on 180 questions in a row, like OpenAI doesn't at least claim that it's that correct. They kind of caveat a lot of stuff and say like, oh, it's prone to be incorrect about stuff or mislead you, or it's possible to generate false information. Like, do you run into that at all? Or do you think that's kind of just a hand-waving caveat? No, no, no. I don't think it's hand-waving at all. I think it's a real issue. 
I I mean, I think GPT-4 is spectacularly more capable than GPT-3 is in my own sort of personal use. Its ability to reason about things is, so to speak, is way better. But I'd say a couple of things. So one, it, it is capable of like passing the MCAT, the GMAT, the like LSAT, like all of those. Like you can't pass those tests without the ability to co construct logical things that are. Yeah, and it's I'd say it's very good at that work. So a couple of things. So one is there's a lot of leverage in the questions themselves. So for example, I've learned that, as I said before, you need to explain your goal and everything you know to it. Every time I see someone post some sort of gotcha example, I, I mean, if I could mute gotcha examples in my life, I would, <laughs> because I don't understand that's like gotcha people in real life. Like, no, tell the other person all the things you know, and then they'll be working with the same knowledge you have, and then there's no gotchas. I mean, you can get gotcha together, but you're not gonna get, you're not gonna gotcha them. So when you say a question, like you gave examples before, but like when you say a question, like are you typing hundreds of characters in uh, of context into these like one individual query? Yeah, I think that my my queries tend to be longer, I think, than others would. I tend to copy and paste a lot of stuff like other code, like like I said before, release notes, answers from before, like, you know, I mean, I have a lot of content around, right? So I feed back stuff. And sometimes you know, having one everlasting conversation, that's, I found that's not really the right way to go because it can kind of, it, it'll fixate on its previous answers from one thread. And so sometimes you kind of want to like start a new thread so it forgets, like its lack of a memory is a feature sometimes. Like a, like people would be well served to forget sometimes in conversation. Like, you know, <laughs> just like stop thinking about the thing that you, we were just talking about. We're going to start anew. And so one point is be clear about your goal. Point two is provide it the context that you have. Point three is have it explain its thinking and have it break down the problem before it does any more work, just like a person, right? So, you know, what's the secret to secret number one to problem solving is knowing what problem you're solving. Secret number two to problem solving is make the problem smaller. It's just the same with this, right? So first, tell it what, what problem you're solving. Second, make the problems littler. So for example, you don't say, hey, write me a solver that does the following. No, first it's let's think through the objective functioning constraints. So, and let's iterate on those and make sure we get them right. Now, once we've got those right, I'm gonna scrap that conversation and say, here's our objective and constraints. Now let's formulate that into a linear program or mixed integer program or whatever it is. Okay, so now it does that. Then you go, okay, now we've got that. Now let's select our solver. Now, in fact, in this whole thing, right at the beginning, you can say, outline a project plan for us that are all the steps we need to go through. And what I've found back to the principle number one, which is tell it what you know, I know a lot about those things. So I just quickly jot down, in my experience, the following steps are required to do this right. I may have forgotten something. Read that, insert anything you think is missing. We'll talk about that. And now we've got a project plan. And then you go to step one, and then you go down the rabbit hole, and then you go back out the rabbit hole, and you have the answer to step one. And the, step, the answer to step one feeds step two. Rinse, repeat as you go down and up. 
So you can imagine a lot of questions along the way, right, in that process. I mean, this is like the collaboration that you imagine Iron Man has with Jarvis, right? Like, oh, just throw that model together. Oh, compute that. What am I missing? Like, it's an incredibly fluid, sort of like high respect, give and take Absolutely. process. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's a, you know, zero that I've said is speculative. This is just my lived experience of it. Like, this exists right now. And GPT-4 is good enough that my take is if it never got better, it's good enough. Like to do to fundamentally to change transform a lot everything. Of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's already great. Okay, so that's that solver is probably a good bridge into some of the product changes, which is maybe chapter two, right? So I think that's a really a good sort of progression. So you're running a software business. You spent seven years building a product that's incredibly sort of perfect for your customers. It continues to get developed. You've got a team of developers still on your team, working hard. How is your product evolving for both as a product itself and, and for your customers? Yeah, so I made a list in preparation. I did a little research before we started talking about all of the, in the last four months, what are the AI-infused features that we've shipped? Just to be sort of literal about this answer. So here are some. I mean, are, are the specifics helpful? Because I, I, I mean- Yeah, I love okay. specifics. Let's go. So here's some more. Okay. Incidents. So there are incidents that happen that people track in the software, like the paver broke down, like there's a fire on the road, that kind of stuff. So people on teams want to see the headlines of the incidents sort of in notifications and other places. Like it's good to know what's going on. The problem is that these incidents are created in the field by people with cell phones that, you know, are trying to put a fire out. There are many reasons why the content's going to be shaky, right? They're trying to put a fire out. Things are hairy. Their fingers are too big for their phones. It's cold out. You know what I mean? Like a lot going on. And so it's kind of a stressful, it's, it's underrated how stressful this is. It upsets the people involved that they all sound lousy in this communication. Like they, they, you know, because you read it and like the spelling's bad and the punctuation's not there and it's kind of stilted and it's just not great. I was like, well, guess what? We'll just rewrite what happened into a sort of declarative single sentence that says, this is, you know, this is what happened on the incident. And we'll call that the headline. And then instead of leading with the description that the person put in, which again, doesn't make them look that good most of the time, we'll make them look good by rewriting the incident headline in an effective, you know, with effective English. So we ship that sort of is that going to change the world? No, but sure, appreciated by everyone. Okay, we added safety risks to jobs. So, well, we had already done that, but we used past incidents and general knowledge of the types of risks associated with different types of jobs to suggest what safety risks may be inherent to a given type of what we call job production plan, which is like a crew day. Right. So sometimes overhead line danger is a thing. Sometimes at like night is a whole new set of problems. Cold is a whole new set of problems. And so we built something that suggested the likely safety risks given the full context of the job. That was new. We generated, we added something that created what are called toolbox talks, which are the communication that the foreman has with the crew 
about the plan for the day and about the safety risks and the plan to mitigate them. So there are two problems that are interesting there. One, most of these guys are not Shakespeare, nor actors, right? So their writing and their reading is, like they would admit is not their strong suit. So there's a reason why they were a foreman on a paving crew, right? That's not what they want to do, is write a document and, and speak to a group. And so it's sort of stressful to both write the content and deliver the content. And so we just generate now the communication. And that communication is available to everyone else. Another thing we do, everywhere where we generate content, we now make it audio also. Like everywhere audio. Because two reasons. One, a lot of, the, a lot of our users don't like to read too much. And they don't read too much to be direct about it. And so listening to things is easier, right? They're in trucks going to jobs. It's sort of easier. Also, the people that would be communicating to them don't really like to read either, like read aloud. Like they don't like to perform a thing. Plus, it's a little bit difficult at job sites anyhow, and people show up at different times and it's loud and, you know, all these things. And so the audio is nice because it both shifts the time and the place to be more convenient for everyone. So again, generating the, the sort of like the, the messages plus converting them into audio. And are these, sorry to interrupt, are these all sort of with the same like OpenAI API that you're doing? Are these all different tools? Are you? Yeah, so the audio we use Google for now, all the rest of them are OpenAI that I mentioned. Some of them existed before the current, you know, some of them were back with the original GPT-3 API. We've migrated most of them to the chat GPT version, like the G and now we're on the GPT-4 beta. So now most of them are on GPT-4, not all of them, but most of them. And are the engineers like super excited to work on all this stuff and are like, oh my God, we can solve problems we've never been able to solve before? It's a good question. I think it depends. I wouldn't say on average that's true. I think it's some people are really into it. Others are, I'd say, they don't really see it any differently than any other feature. And I'd say that everyone to some degree has some fear of it all because, you know, my own estimation of my personal productivity is that it's something like 50% higher than it was three months ago ish, you know, at least that now, maybe a little higher. I think that 50 to hundred is probably what we'll see inside of our engineering team within two months, one month. I mean, we're right there now because of stuff like Copilot. Yeah, because of, well, a few things. Because of Copilot, for sure. So Copilot's good for 25%. I think that as it stands now, ChatGPT and other sort of like more zoomed out tools, they're good for another 25. They're good at refactoring code. They're good at answering questions about like, how do I X? How do I Y? What's the right algorithm for Z? Please tell the bug fix story that you told me the other night. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This While we're in product land, this is a crazy one. Yeah, so it's, it, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, so two things. So first, we had this sort of production bug, like red siren bug, that took down a bunch of buttons, basically, in our app. And all of a sudden, we, we started to see in our Slack support channel, like, customers say, hey, this button's not working. What's going on? And then someone else said, this other thing's not working. And once you hear, like, three of them, and they're all involving what I you know, knew to be a type of button. I was like, hmm, seems like there was something that broke a type of button component. But 
I hadn't looked at any of this code at all. And it's, we were kind of in the transition. So most of the India team was kind of settled down for the night. It was early in the morning. So it was like a little bit like a, what are we going to do kind of moment? And so I said, okay, I, you know, I'll, I'll look in and see if I can figure out what's going on. And I looked at the recent pull requests that were merged, found one that seemed like it probably was the culprit, except it was big. It was big because it was sort of modernizing, so to speak, like this, this uh, pattern that involved various components. And anyways, so I'm like, shoot, this is a thing to read through. So I, I thought, okay, I know what I'll do. I'll take the diff of it and I'll just paste it into ChatGPT with GPT-4 because it you know, could afford the co full context of the pull request. And then I took all of the um, reports from Slack, like users have reported the following. I just literally verbatim pasted them. This, 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 this. I'm pretty sure the bug is somewhere in this pull request. Write a list of the most likely culprits. And it wrote five, you know, one, two, three, four, five. Like it could be this, it could be this, maybe this, think about that. And one of them was it. And it was kind of like two of them were it. It was like two of them were hunting in the same area and combined they ended up being the issue. Later that same day, similar thing happened where teammate named Pankaj, he asked a question and he was sort of stumped on this drag and drop bug he was experiencing in a feature he was writing. And he was banging his head against the wall and he just sort of yelled into the slack abyss, like, does anyone know why this may be? I, I, I'm stuck. And so just to have some fun, I took exactly what he wrote. I didn't even change it. And I said, hey, <laughs> a coworker just said this, write a list of the things to, like a checklist of the debugging steps to find the issue. Sure enough, number two, it was it. It was, it, it said, I, I bet that there's a bubbling issue or some other components grabbing the event and preventing, de preventing the bubbling from going further. Like, so look for that. And it turned out that's what it was. That's crazy. Is this, that's your method of campaigning to get more people to just use chat GPT in your company directly? Are you actively trying to get more of the team to sort of have, get this reflex? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, to say that I'm obsessed with this point, I think would be underserving the reality of, of it. <laughs> and, you know, I actually find it very challenging. Um, I think about this literally all day long, which is how to motivate everyone to fully embrace the tools. And so my, my current sort of philosophy on this is that for me, my own work, what six months ago was good now looks kind of so-so to me. Like, actually, what six months ago was fast now feels very slow to me. And speed, not to be like, you know, an Einstein fanboy, but like speed and quality are relative. They're not absolute measures. Like there's no such thing as like goodness when it comes to the work. It's all relative to what's possible. And so when you have seen that what's possible has fundamentally changed, that in something like half the time you can do some amount better, whatever the metric of better is, I can't unsee it. And so my mission is to communicate that clearly. And what happens now is I think people hear the enthusiasm sometimes as fanboyness or hobbying of some sort. And it's while there's some truth to that, I think it's more like 
straight up, it's more like being compelled to, like, in other words, like, I can't, it's clear that we don't have any choice. Like, if we all of a sudden got 50% slower overnight, the business would have trouble. Well, having what's possible become two times higher is the same thing. Matt, you know, it's the same thing. Especially if competitors figure out and you don't. Absolutely. Now for us, and thank goodness on the following, you know, we have grown very steadily year after year after year. That's not stopping, right? So we'll grow, I don't know, 60, 70% this year versus last year, probably about the same the year after that, maybe even more than that. And so we, when faced with a doubling of capacity, let's call it a doubling of capacity. For me, and that's like, well, great, because now I've just solved part of our medium to short-term scaling problem, basically. Now, if we weren't growing like that, boy, it'd be a trickier situation. Because then you say, well, we have to absorb that productivity either into growth, but you know, if you don't have that, you'd have to absorb it into lower other costs, basically, efficiency in other ways that that better work could generate or into better prices because of better negotiation or better features, or you're going to have to reduce the cost, right? Like, but it's going to go somewhere, right? It's going somewhere. And so for us, it's a little less stressful, I think, than it could be because growth is a pretty good tonic, right? So growth allows me to say to the team, hey, good news. This is not going to result in the team needing to shrink. We're growing really well. This solves a scaling problem. but the other side of that coin is that every team member is obligated to go as fast as is possible. There's not a choice on that part. That's the deal, basically. And, you know, long answer to a short question, but I do literally everything I, I possibly can every day to communicate this all day long. Leading by example being the first one. Yeah, it's a very interesting, I was reading a post where the sort of leap in tooling and capacity for an individual contributor is this is on the order of the personal computer revolution. It's more difficult to grok because it's software instead of like, you used to have to do this on a piece of paper and now it's on a screen and look, you can command F and sort and search and do all this amazing stuff. So it's going to take a little bit, it's maybe a little bit harder, a little takes a little bit more of an experience because you can't tell just by looking at someone using a computer that this is happening. But I think that's well put, like the expectations of output for each individual person have gone up and this is why, and they need to learn the skill of using these new tools and increase their efficiency and their speed and their quality. And it's interesting that you called out both of those. I think that's a really oh, yeah. important point. The quality jump is not talked about as much as it should be. Like the work is just better. Like my work is better than it used to be. I've been doing a thing recently where before every meeting I have, I take four minutes to in four minutes attempt to prep better for the meeting. Like just to like, I just sort of open a session and say, I'm entering the meeting. Here's who's going to be here. Here's the topic. Here's what's going to be for. Like, what are the topics I should have in my mind? What are the, and then I you know, do the same technique I did before. I've become a five times better meeting attendee. I am completely ready for every interaction with like a teeny bit of like no time like a few minutes, like the time I would take just making a coffee or whatever. I think the other thing that people may be surprised by is your example around the sort of the solver was very logical, right? Like there are correct answers, there's correct, the code either compiles or it doesn't, performs the function or it doesn't. 
is something else that you, the examples that you've shared with me is great at creative work, especially if you follow this method that you're recommending of like, give me 10 options, I'll fle- and then flesh out the best one. Like you're using it to name features. You're using it to make icons. follow up on like icons, brainstorms. Yeah, I mean, we haven't even talked about the images yet. Honestly, like go into the mm-hmm. you know the, the icons, the images, feature well, names, I, stuff like so that. So I didn't. I mean, on the on something to sort of bring it all together on the product side that I think touches on a lot of this is all those other features I mentioned. Those were kind of what we did when we were getting going. You know, they were relatively small. They were kind of enhancing a little thing along the way. But once we had maybe eight of them under our belt, we kind of knew how to do it right. Our prompt engineering skills were pretty good. We understood how to chain things well, you know, blah, blah. Uh, We were prepared. I looked at our strategy and one of the three items on our strategy is to what we call productize operations, which means to take all the work that we have like operation staff members do to help train new customers, provide customer support, explain things, problem solve, make quizzes, all that sort of stuff. That all that part of our work is a real problem for scaling for us because it's very difficult to train it because it requires a ton of expertise. In fact, you you mentioned earlier how many words are in frequently asked questions in a business. So because of this feature, I know how many were in ours. The good news is that we had years worth of release notes um, and newsletters of content around for every feature, every topic, or not every, lots of them though. And so we said, geez, I wonder if we could just use this big corpus of knowledge that we have in order to build a bot version for most of what our operations staff does. So the answer on how much content is 127,000 words was at the time, the sort of size of the release note and newsletter library. And so the first thing we did, which is a fun use of AI, is I said, okay, like our test versions of the answers, the system was, it was good, but it wasn't great. And one of the problems was it it didn't have enough language. Like it was missing some word, like it didn't know some words that you need to know, like terms of art. And so what we did is we wrote, you know, a little script or some features that went through every release note and every newsletter and extracted every glossary term that we believed existed in anything we ever said. Right. So that generated, uh, let's say it's a thousand terms. And then we said, now draft a definition for each of them based on reading any of the things that seem related. And that generated, I think in the end, it was like 450 glossary terms. And that then we went through and did some editing on. So then we had release notes, newsletters, and glossary terms. And we built on top of that a feature called Hey Kayla. And hey, Kayla is, you just ask it any question whatsoever, but I mean, any question, how do I do this? Make, um, I'm going to meet with drivers and I want to explain to them why this thing is good for them. Write it for me. How my trucking surplus is too high and I want a step-by-step program to reduce it, especially focused in this area, write it for me. Anything, anything. And so we built this feature called hey, Kayla, and it first sort of assembles back to this context point, it assembles the related content that 
may be related to the question. It creates, and this is interesting, back to what I learned personally, it creates at first a clear understanding for the bot of who's asking the question, what their context is. Like, this is a person that's a driver. They work in this geographic area. They work for this company, in case you see it in documents, et cetera. And now, like, here's the question they have. I've assembled for you various reference materials. Now, in, you know, this amount of budget, you give me back an answer. So we built up this, this feature, Hey, Caleb. And it's amazing. It's like it took this area that was a huge stress of mine, which is how the heck are we going to add marginal operations capacity that is expert when it takes like 18 months to become expert and half of them will quit. Like the math is really bad on that problem. And it no longer a concern of mine. Like the problem, it, and, and so we release it, is sort of mind-blowingly good. Internally, it's mind, it's incredible how good it is. Especially, it, it took a few rounds of iteration for it to get great, but now I think it's it's pretty great. Do you run into challenges around just customers not expecting an interface like that to be good yet? Like it, they just got good. Normally, like those chats are just so frustrating. Yes, yes, yes. In, in, in a couple of ways. So it's, I mean, it's impossibly good, right? So I get it. I have a lot of, I empathize with them on this point. <laughs> so, I mean, for example, we've put out multiple newsletters where we give examples. Like these are, like when we upgraded to the GPT-4 engine, as an example, I, the first three questions that I asked, I'm actually, I'm going to look them up while we're talking because I think that they're unbelievable. So I looked up three questions and I, and I said, I mean, I hope this gimmick would work. I said, okay, I'm going to just use the exact verbatim answers to the first three questions I ask of it and say, I didn't like ask 20 to find three. I just asked three, pasted them and here they are, you know, let's see. So here are the three questions. Number one, I said, I'm a logistics manager. Give me a step-by-step -step plan for remediating late driver arrivals using tools and XP. It wrote a 10-step bulleted plan that was on the nose, like just as good as an expert would have done. Number two, I'm a trucking manager. I'm going to have a meeting with my drivers. I'd like to convince them that XBE includes many features that make their lives better. Write my speech with the top five reasons they should be excited. Ex did exactly as asked? Perfect. Like multiple people have used this speech now. It's excellent. Third one, <laughs> what is a time card pre-approval? How does it differ from an admin approval? When should we use which strategy? Of course, this you know you don't know the context here. That is an extremely nuanced question. That it that, got that's, right. That sounds like a twenty-five minute email to write. Yeah, because it's you know what you're right, and it's the shortest answer, which is why it would take the longest, and it's very nuanced. It's a very nuanced point or somewhat nuanced point, and it got all three of them. It just got it right. So, to your question, I think a couple of observations. One sort of weird that people don't say what their question is, really. So there's very much like a Google search impulse that people have, which is like, for example, they'll type in the words material transaction, or they'll type in the word like time card, 
or route or there have been nouns basically yeah which we've been slowly trained to do by search engines for like the last 20 years that's right and the results are always interesting because it's like they're right it's like because what we do is we both answer the question and then on the left side we provide all of the reference materials that we have gathered for it right so let's say there are 75 documents that we've assembled that we think are related to this question enough to care. So those are on the left side of the screen, the right side of the screen, kind of like Bing, is the answer. Now, it's funny when someone just like puts a noun in, like material transaction. I saw that one this morning. The answers are fascinating. Like that one, it was sort of a remarkably good answer. It said, I see you asked about material transactions. Here's what they are. And Here's like the different situations where you may care about them. But like, it was like kind of like if you just someone like blurted out a word, and, but you were <laughs> obligated to politely sort of engage in an effective conversation and it like did pretty good, pretty well. But on the left side, it had, a, a, you know, just various reference materials. But the interesting thing is if you just took 10 seconds to say exactly what you want, like uh, someone told me to enter a material transaction. I'm a driver. I don't know how to do it. What do I do? Like, you get it right basically every time. So you're right. It's like, I don't know if it's the Google training. I don't know if it's the suspension of discipline. I wonder if it'll change, like, how much the inputs will change. Like, is it actually that you need them to submit a short form? It's like, what's your role? What company are you at? What problem are you trying to solve? Or what information do you need? And, like, then you can turn that on the back end into a prompt, like, turn nouns into a story. I think my take on that through a different user so interface. I think you may, I think maybe. I'm not sure yet. Like, it's clear to me that, I mean, just yesterday we added that we just merged something that added a bunch of context that we knew about the person that sort of, you already had, yeah, sort yeah. of of the sort you just said, which says like, here's a bunch of stuff I know about them. And it really improved the answers. Like we had before and afters where it's sort of remarkable how context will affect things. And it's just like people, but I mean, you give it, you frame the situation and it's much more likely to sort of shoot correct in uncertainty. So I think maybe. Which is interesting. This is the first interface that you've, when you respect it with, by giving it the most context, you can actually expect it to reciprocate with like meaningfully better results. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like Google doesn't do that. No, it's not at all. Really? Like not the more keywords you add, it just gets more confused. You know, it's interesting. You just said that. Like I just, as an aside today. I broke a rule that I've never broken before, which is my wife and I have bought like various stocks over the years. And the rule is we don't sell, we only buy. And I like that rule. Yeah. And today I broke it for the first time. What'd you sell? Google. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I'm a big believer in doing the things I believe. Like, so not just talking, but like doing them. And I just was, re I was talking to Teresa, my wife, and was reflecting on how little I use Google now. And how business model wise, I mean, technically, I don't doubt that they've got, got what it takes, but business model wise, ooh, they really are up against it on this one. And in my experience, business models are, you know, extremely powerful. And so I broke the rule today. First time sold Google because I, because of that sort of related to the point you made, plus my own experience we talked about. 
it's going to be a fascinating case to play out. I mean, we know that they have capacity. We know that they own DeepMind. We know that they have, in, th- in theory, working on this for a long time, but they also have the most to lose. And the conflict, it, like, it's going to be, I mean, it's the innovator's dilemma of the decade. Like, it's going to be so interesting. Um, I can't imagine that they do nothing, but, uh, but the, every day, yeah, it's fascinating. Okay, let's try to realign with the, the sort of part three, which is organization. We've touched on it a little bit, but I want to kind of give you room to run on this because I think all of these are applicable, but individual contributor and organization managers, I think like a lot of the, the audience here is founders and I'm or investors, and I'm fascinated to sort of hear how your vision of, of an organization and how it runs and the inputs and outputs of it, the expectations of it sort of have changed in the last couple months as this has really come, the power of this has sort of become obvious to you. Yeah. Well, I love this topic and I think a lot of it's very scary. So just as a disclaimer, <laughs> trigger warning on all of the following. So, okay, just to, I'll go rapid fire on this one. So one value of expertise has, has cratered and I think it's critical to go through the organization, both in terms of who you currently have on staff and who you are thinking about having on staff and ask the question for everyone, to what degree is that person's role about what they know? And if the answer is a lot, they either are going to have to learn some other things or you're not going to hire that job anymore. You know, this is, I think, very sort of counterintuitive moment in this area and that Previously, these sorts of technical innovations impacted the bottom up, right? This is, to my mind, the first time ever that it's going the other direction. So these innovations impact the top first and then go down. So they impact the highest paid, most credentialed, most educated people more or as much at the very least as they do the low level. People with tons of expertise where when all of a sudden it's rendered to not matter much. And so, and I don't mean, I'm, not, I'm speaking in absolutes. I don't mean it in absolutes, but it matters a lot less. And so I think that's step one is say, hey, have we invested a lot in expertise? Do we have a lot of capacity that's about expertise? And if we do, we can repurpose that capacity in, into other things. The larger, like a smaller organization like mine, it's not a huge deal because you don't have specialists. Like just not big enough to have specialists. If I was in a bigger organization, like I've been in the past, it, this would impact us a lot because you have a lot of specialists in bigger organizations and those highly specialized sort of technical roles just aren't that valuable in the very, very near future. And so I'd say that's sort of category one. Category two, I think recruiting generally is going to change, I think is changing a lot right now. So a couple of examples, we are focused primarily right now when we recruit in two areas. One is problem solving by itself. So whereas like we've reduced the amount we care about their technical expertise, and I'm saying whether they're a technical person or an operations person or a salesperson, like what they know matters a lot less than it ever did before. How they approach problems and break them down into their components, basically do the work I talked about before like decomposing problems into smaller problems, evaluating the option space, you know, going down the promising paths, you know, so on and so forth. That skill is the one that's valuable. And figuring out how to, and it's much more valuable relatively than it used to be. Because it used to be that you'd have to actually do the thing, but now the doing the thing is getting a lot easier. And so in knowing what to do, 
is the thing. Like, you know, there's there are a lot of quotes that are. And it happens more often. Like knowing what to do it, constantly. Have a hundred. I mean, 180 questions in a day. Like that's that's the iteration. That's the feedback loop now, right? That's the reorientation. That's right. There's this great quote that I've heard Horace Dedu say, guy that writes a Simcoe, and he says something like, "Like the answers, my answers are free, but the questions you got to pay for, or some sort of pithy thing like that." That's becoming all work, basically. The answers are free, the questions you got to pay for, and so. Who's good at asking questions is the skill to interview for. And I don't know that we figured out how to interview for that yet. Like we're actively working on solving that problem right now to say like, how do we identify? Now, shocker, you know, this is something I'm deeply engaged with GPT-4 on trying to solve this particular problem. We've architected entirely new sort of interview rubrics that are built around this one. So that's point, that's point one about recruiting. Point two is stamina. And I think this may be slightly unexpected if you haven't sort of been deep into this, but this style of work is physically difficult. It is unbelievably intense because there isn't time off. You know, it used to be you'd be like waiting for someone to speak or you're waiting, you know, you have to have a meeting to collaborate on a thing. And so like, you know, you're one of six people. And so on average, you're only engaged one sixth of the, you only matter half the time. You're only physically speaking or one sixth of the time, et cetera. You know, and it's not that way when you're working in this style, you're basically constantly working. And it's like a very counterintuitive thing when you hear it, because you're like, well, I thought that the machine was doing it for you. You're like, no, 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 no. The machine is doing things, but like, you don't have any time off because you're just constantly engaged. And I've found, I mean, as you know, I'm sort of a health focused person in, you know, good shape. And I found I am beat at the end of the day. Like I am really physically giving it my all every single day I work. And that kind of work ethic, I think it's a combination maybe of work ethic and stamina sort of like just the ability to stay focused for that long and just to endure that kind of pace is, I'd say probably not for everyone right now. And I think many people could develop that stamina. Work ethic is a bit of a question, you know, I'm not sure on that one. But to answer your question, we're trying to recruit for those things. Problem solving first, stamina, work ethic too. And then the third one is small identities that finding people that have low ego that won't be upset by all of this. Because I mean, if you were to construct a machine to destroy identity, I think you'd come up with this. Like it is punishing in that it takes things that people's entire identity are built on. You know, the ability to write well, the ability to be clever, the ability to know how to chant into the API, the things one needs to, and it's like great at all of them. And all of a sudden as an individual, you're like, what am I? Like, what am I now? I have, and this is a, like a tremendously dark aside, and I'm going to leave out a couple of details that'll be clear in a second, but I actually have one step removed personal experience now where someone who's someone's business is sort of in the bullseye of what's going to be affected this year or is affected maybe now because of AI related advancements in that industry that attempted suicide on Friday. And in their note, 
about it, they wrote, I can't be me anymore. That was the punchline of the no. Now they survived. You're going to be okay. But that's not like a conjured example. That's like manifesting this point around identity deconstruction. And my own experience is that nothing is more valuable to people than their identity, like in the world. And I've never seen anything more effective at tearing down identity than this. And so the third thing we're recruiting for is small identities, just people with very low ego, very little attachment to who they are, so to speak, because I think it's critical. I think it's hard to endure emotionally the kind of transformation of what's valuable otherwise. It's very interesting. And I, I appreciate how sort of deeply you've thought about this at all the different levels of engagement. And I identify even I'm early in the rabbit hole. You're many months and many, many hours ahead of me here, but it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming to figure out how to interact with this new thing. It's overwhelming to confront the reality that it's, I'm not going to say omniscient, but like it knows up orders of magnitude more than we ever will. And it knows it instantly. It's like, you know, that demoralizing feeling when you're like playing chess against the computer and you think about a move for five minutes and it moves instantly and it whoops your ass. It's that for work. And there's a very interesting, like it's on your team. That's the good news, right? Like the things on your team. But what you said about the pace or the stamina is really interesting because it can't work without you. You know, it's not working in its sleep. It's making you more effective for every question that you can ask it, every hour that you can spend in the saddle. But you've got to be there for it to multiply your efforts and your output. And I hadn't considered that before, but I think that's a really sort of good thing to understand about it. Mm. I mean, it's one of those where I think one could either understand it theoretically or just like give it a couple months. <laughs> like It'll be pretty clear because it's a very real experience. It sounds at least like a lot of what you have learned has been sort of self-taught and you just kind of jumped in the sandbox and started playing around with it. Are there resources or any places that you've you've gone to learn this stuff that you would recommend or f- that you found helpful? Yeah. I, a few months ago, subscribed to all of the best AI-centric newsletters I could find. And I have very much, in hindsight, benefited from that. Now, there's a lot of news that's come out, so it's a little overwhelming. It takes a bit of a commitment to stay up on it. But if I could subscribe to one, having, I think I subscribe to five now that I read, but the one that I think could suffice is called Ben's Bites. Mm. Yeah, Ben Tossel. And it's, I'd say it's similar to some of the other ones, but it's a bit more like right down the middle, which is, you know, kind of what I was looking for. And now the newsletter itself is not going to teach you enough, but it will point to all the things that would be enough. So yeah, I just started to read the details on a lot of things. And then, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a doer. And so just started to implement some of them and, and then, you know, it kind of creates its own energy and feedback loop. But, but Ben's Bites, I'd say is really good. And especially if you commit to reading anything that seems relevant from it. Interesting. Okay. Now I know we wanted to kind of stay focused as much as possible on sort of the today, right? Like what are the tactics and stuff that you're changing right now? But I want to get in your head a little bit as sort of the leader and owner and this is your baby, this is your livelihood, this business is it. How do you think 
about the landscape now? Are you thinking differently about sort of the, the size and structure of your company at maturity? Are you more worried about, about competition? Like in, in theory, the barriers to entry for building the software are much lower than they have been. Is that like, is this a, how those thoughts evolved, I guess? A couple of things. So as it relates to XB specifically, I think we're in a really good spot, thankfully. And it's because the product is so complicated that it's so expansive. And, you know, there's some innovations where it's like there's one thing that is the innovation. And then there are some that are, it's like there are 10,000 little things and it's the collection of them that's the innovation or more like the latter, like 10,000 things. And I think that if we stood still, I would be concerned a bit more just for, for the simple fact that what took us seven years could take, well, if my numbers were right before, could take three or something, three and a half, maybe something like that. All other things being equal, at least. Now, thankfully, we don't really have much debt, technical debt, you know, so our infrastructure is really, really good and our velocity is really good. And so we have picked up the pace and are now sort of deploying our capacity and expertise, both as it relates to leveraging AI in features like the ones like Hey Kayla, like safety risk, you know, all the rest ones I said before, like we've got one coming soon that's interesting, which is a bot time card approval auditor, which is like a job that someone does now that's actually quite a like mid-level job that like we've experimented a little bit and it's very clear you can teach GPT-4 to do this job well. And so that's an example of AI being in the feature. But then there are lots of features where it's AI helps us make features. And I actually think that in the community at large, there's insufficient talk about the former or about the latter rather. There's a lot of talk about AI features, but there should be at least as much talk about AI helping make non-AI features, right? Because most features are, many features at least are non-AI. And then lastly, there's the business side of it, which is, you know, we've deployed this in our sales and marketing game about determining, you know, reaching, researching prospects. You know, I've always believed in our business that having individual sales and marketing strategies for every single prospect was the right move because we have a, you know, limited TAM as it, you know, so to speak. But now it's definitely the case, right? They, I mean, we can afford to completely craft, totally bespoke plans for 100% of our target market. It's a totally new game in that way. And so I, I guess what I'd say is I think the threat is pretty real in that everything's faster. And I think if you stood still, you could get caught pr much quicker than would feel possible. And so, you know, in our case, we can actually press that advantage though, which is like, we are good at making things and we, we are in a good position. And so we can, as long as there is additional value to create, which there is for us, given the size and scale of what we do, then if we just go faster, then at a minimum, we maintain the current lead. And I think more likely it just diminishes someone's willingness to try. Interesting. Yeah. There's no risk of you slowing down. It sounds like. Do you think that this will cause margins in your business to increase or decrease? In our specific business, increase. Software at large, software industry Definitely in general? decrease. Interesting. Yeah, I would put me down for an overall bet on deflation generally in this area. 
I think the price of things should collapse in a lot of areas. I think even if margin percentages stayed the same, which I think they'll, will be difficult except for organizations that are super agile and mostly variable costs, I would think you'll both see a revenue decline and a margin percent decline given, well, given leverage, you know? I mean, it's a fascinating moment that way and that I've for my entire career obsessed about leverage and it has taught me, I think, what to expect now, which is that everything that was good is going to turn bad. Like leverage works both ways. You know, I mentioned at dinner the other day, I was, I worked for Conway in 2007, eight, uh, when the great recession happened. And I remember going into work the day after Lehman went out and our volume went down 25% the next day. This is like a $4 billion revenue company, 25%. And at the time, I was head of pricing and strategy and engineering there for the whole company. And we had 440 locations and 20-some thousand employees. But it's the locations, you know, and massive operating leverage. So tons of leverage. In other words, the business was pretty great in good times. And I remember just walking into the, the like boardroom with the executive team. And it was clear we were screwed, like super screwed because of leverage. So all now, so in other words, I had this one experience in my career where leverage worked the other way. And then most of it is that leverage worked for you. And now I think I can see pretty clearly how it's going to be the other way again. Yeah, I, this is going to be a very interesting sorting function. And, and I think the distinction that you made earlier is good. Like those who are many years into a very complicated product within the software industry, I think, especially if they have existing customer relationships and integrations and practices around it are relatively safe. Maybe it's easier to approach building something to replace it. Maybe it, that could happen cheaper, but also it's scary. I think the simpler the product, the more the, the weaker the moat for sure. But there's a lot of software with what is truly like a technical edge and, and a foundation that is like an engineering problem that hasn't been solved before. Some anyway, you know, may, maybe not the majority, but but enough that that's also a different case. It's, it'll be fascinating. I, mean, I think point solutions. So if I would be very concerned if I was a point solution, like incredibly concerned. More the more unitask the thing is, the more specialized, the more even if it's technically advanced. I don't think that there's any point solution that's just very good at a thing that is going to come out clean, unless it's like. I mean, there are exceptions to prove the rule clearly, but but for the most part, I think anything that's like that is it's either large language model will be better at it, which is going to be true for a lot, or they're just going to be effective at creating a competitor sheet. And whether it's A or B, it's trouble. Yeah. Okay. As we kind of wind down, wrap up here, I want to just, you've touched on some of the softer side of it, but if you're you're six months down this journey, you seem enthralled by the power of it and aware of some of the shadows that it casts. And I'm, I'm curious sort of how you feel about it. I think my career I'd split into three sections. And I thought about this long before this sort of AI moment. And the beginning part of my career when I was, you know, my 20s, my identity was that I was smarter just terribly gross and not that effective. But nonetheless, I think was the case. And I had a moment in my late 20s where 
it just became clear to me that I was a little impressed with, you know, myself and that I wasn't impressed by anyone else that was impressed with themselves. And I was like, well, that seems to tell me something. And so I decided like, I mean, on a day that I was changing it. And the thing I decided that would be true is that I would work harder than anyone else. And so sort of phase one was smarter. Then I got very turned off by that as I should have been. And phase two was work harder. And that lasted a bit. And then I looked up and had worked, I was working for big public companies at the time in head of strategy, head of pricing, kind of like the applied science, you know, smart guy jobs. And it occurred to me, I hadn't thought much about what I was working on at all, ever. Like I was just working, I was working on the hard problem. That's what I was working on. But like the goodness of it, it just, it didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't part of my thinking and including who I was working with and for on things. And I kind of had a similar moment, which is like, boy, I don't, I'm not really impressed by people that don't consider who they work with and what they work on. Like, I find that kind of gross. And so maybe I should listen to myself, my, like my own judgment of others. Maybe I should like, you know, <laughs> like apply it at home. And so I hit a new moment and said, okay, I think that uh, being smart is kind of gross and working hard is, uh, can be gross if it's going to the wrong thing. And so the rest of my career, I'm just going to try to be courageous. Like, I'm going to try to do the hard, like do the thing that I know is right. And I think when that sounds quite full of it, but like, I found it to be quite helpful. Like, and it, it led to the best phase of my career where I was still working hard on things, but I was like judging much more the what I was working on and who I was working with. And anyways, long way to say that. I think that we're in the moment of our lives work-wise. So I, mean, I, I was working at the beginning of the internet, right? So I graduated college in 99 and that's right at the beginning and I jumped right into it. So I worked through that. I worked through the Great Recession in a very, you know, sort of interesting job, as I mentioned. I was here for the iPhone and rode that career-wise and have done well. This is so much more than all of those. And those were all huge, but it's obvious it's more. Like I can remember what those were and I was enthralled by them too for what it's worth. And so I guess my point is that I just don't, I think it's so scary to see what's the degree of change and pressure that it's going to take a lot of courage to not go into a hole, to go into denial to run from it, to lash out at it. And I think all those are futile and we'll lose and are cowardly. And so I'm just going to face it. That's how I feel. And that's not to say that's, that I, I'm that's well put. I'm sort of into it too. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I think it's exciting. <laughs> I think it's exciting yeah. to be able to work at this pace. I like to work fast. Like, I mean, don't hear me denying that I think that the work itself is fun because I do. But It'd be callous not to every day take a step back and go, this is a moment, man. This is, re this is the real situation. And a lot of people I know are going to be dramatically impacted by it, dramatically. Every college kid I know, literally 100% of them, you know, mo many of my professional friends. And so, like, I just don't want that 
I don't want to be Pollyanna. I don't want to pretend that's not true. I just want to be at the front and do my best. Yeah, that's incredibly well put. I think you've done a little better than facing it, which is I'd characterize what you've described to me in this podcast as making the big scary monster your biggest ally and putting them on your team right next by your side. And that sounds like a winning strategy to me. But I think you're definitely correct to say that it's hard and it's scary and it takes a lot of character and courage to do it. Yeah. Well, I'm trying. I'm trying. And I feel like on that point, if it's scary for me, I mean, I'm in a great spot, right? I've had a great career. I'm financially stable. I have a family that's wonderful. I mean, I'm, I'm in like the, the 100th percentile of good situations. I mean, it'd be freaking really rough if even if you were 25% of the way down that ladder. And yeah, I think it's that sounds like a situation that needs a lot of leadership to me. So I'm just going to try to do it. How much do you feel like your technical expertise and background was necessary or helpful? And I asked that both as a literal question because I'm curious about it because I don't want to scare people away from feeling like they are capable of doing technical things just because they don't necessarily have the technical background. But maybe that's, uh, maybe we should. No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think to the interview characteristics I said we were focused on now, which, you know, were problem solving, stamina, and identity. Those are the ones that matter. Like, I think the reason I've had some success is that I'm a good problem solver, right? Like I'm systematic and break part things apart and makes big problems, small problems and consider lots of options, you know, all, all the by the book things. And so I think that's critical and that doesn't require, I mean, I think programmers may be on average better at that, but lots of non-programmers are good at that and certainly can be. Stamina, that's its own thing, right? I mean, so again, I think a lot of elite programmers have great stamina, but a lot of non-programmers have good stamina too. And then on the third one about identity, man, that one's a big one. And I think programmers are no better than others on average on that. So, or maybe worse on average. Amazing. Well, thank you for taking leadership in this space, like intellectually and in sharing that with us in your company. And now to anybody here who's listening, I think this has been a hugely helpful conversation for me, honestly. I feel I'm still early enough to feel just like kind of overwhelmed and confused by like the whole by the whole newness and power of it, to be honest. And like the I'm excited by it. But this has been really helpful to me in feeling like I can get a rope around it and turn it into a friend. So you've been an amazing example and and I appreciate you sharing all your experiences to help others do that. Well, I appreciate that. And I'm happy about that. I, well, I mean, so for anyone that, that listens to this and is interested in any part of what we talked about, whether it's the how-to, whether it's an example, I mean, I'm interested in the leadership, culture, management topic, the strategy side. I mean, I'd say my interest is somewhat limitless on the topic. And, you know, I am not by dint of the strategy before, I'm not sort of deeply enmeshed in the tech world because we didn't raise, you know, we haven't raised money. We don't interact with venture capital. We aren't in that, you know, we don't hire mostly in the US. So, right. A lot of the, a lot of the reasons people would be, oh, I'm in Kansas <laughs> like you, so or, or down the road. So that sort of takes me out of the scene. That's part of the reason I love holding you up as an example of this actually, is because like, it doesn't have to be a tech scene 
to get into AI. Like AI is ex- people in tech are excited about AI, but everyone should be excited about AI. And there are applications sort of all across the gamut, no matter who, when, or where you are, what you're working on, like this is leverage that can help you. Yeah, absolutely. So anyways, I'm interested in connections, right? Because I don't spend most of my time connecting with other founders in the moment. And uh, yet I'm, you know, I'm social and I like to. So reach out. I'd be happy to chat. Where should people reach out? Where are you easiest to find or prefer to meet people? Yeah. So I think on good on Twitter, that's always fine. I'm barely known on Twitter. Like that's the, that, just like it's spelled. That's the handle. Yeah. Barely known. Okay. All these years. I like all it. these. You can't get too popular with that handle. I mean, that's the, you know, this has been a long play. I'm like, you know what would be great <laughs> is if I was well known and I had the handle barely known. That's exact. If you know me, that's exactly what I want in life. And so it is. Yeah. That, that'll be really funny when you have a million followers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm barely known yeah. on Twitter and that's yeah. probably a good place to start. And, uh, but you know, you could reach me anywhere else to email or LinkedIn or whatever it is. So yeah, I welcome that. And then the second one, can I plug my... I was just going to say, any closing thoughts, anything else you want to share? Yeah. Okay. So we talked earlier about that feature, Hey Kayla, which was is our big AI feature. It's named after my daughter. I think I mentioned that. She works for XBE. Well, she's both manager in our customer operations group, and now she's sort of taking on some of the marketing duties as well. So her name's Kayla, and she's amazing. She's smart and fun and funny and adventurous and beautiful. I mean, all the things. Eric has met her and I, I will not put him on the spot, but he can vouch silently for these things. You don't need to put me on the spot. I can testify. That's Everything right. he says is true. So here's the thing. So she's all these amazing things. It's the one of the joys of my life to be able to work with her. It's just, it's a fabulous thing. But you know, you can't be good at everything. And she's not good at dating. <laughs> she's not. Listen, you got to back to the having a small identity. You got to know yourself. And she's blessed with all of these wonderful gifts and it has not left enough for uh, dating skill and capacity. And so she went with me on two trips to India, which was also amazing. And uh, about half the people we know in India have arranged marriages. And she was commenting about how it seemed like such a reasonable way to find a good match of a partner is to have some collaboration from your parents. And so I was preparing for this podcast and said, you know what, you know, whose listeners are kind of exactly your demographic. I mean, I don't know you listener, but I know you're possibly in the demographic. Eric's listeners, that's who. So these are, is a big, big pile of nerdy dudes for the most part. I've done demographic surveys and that's just basically what it sums to. Right, right, right. And I think- You know who you are. That's right. And so of the listeners that fit that description, the percentage of you that have said, that are single, that have said like, man, all the good girls are taken is not small. I also have friends. (laughs) Except, (laughs) except Kayla Devine in Kansas, who is single and amazing and bad at dating. And so anyway, so I said to her, hey, I'm going on Eric's podcast and you have asked me if like an Indian father, I would engage in finding a suitable match and I have accepted the challenge. And so anyways, this morning I made the website Bay Kayla, B-A-E, Kayla, you know, just as a riff on Hey Kayla. And it has a little gallery of, uh, you know, photos and a little bit about her and a little text box where you can ask her out. If you meet the criteria, she's listed. And so that's my plug. Go to baykayla.com. 
And if she seems like a good match and you seem like a good match, given what she's listed out, ask her out. I love this tactic. Like, screw Tinder. We're going to make like a one-woman landing page and just lean into targeting the demographics that you really want to reach. Yeah, be a beacon. Through a trusted, filtered channel. Like, obviously, what better demographic is there to go fishing for than listeners of this podcast? There's no better group of people in the world, in my humble opinion. I mean, that may be more on the nose than you realize for this this single woman. <laughs> But anyways, there we go. There's my plug. Hi, yeah. N- 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 <laughs> none of you I, own asphalt companies, and so I'm not going to waste my time on that plug. <laughs> if you happen to be in the horizontal construction industry <laughs> and understood what was going on. No, I have a feeling if you're a customer of Sean's, you probably heard from him already, which is, yeah. So it's a privilege to have you sort of on the share all of the, your hard-earned wisdom from a, a niche industry that has so much to teach everybody. And I really, you know, all the conversations that we've had, I've learned from and I've always admired how you've thought about building your business, building your team, doing your work. And I'm glad we, uh, I'm glad we finally got to record one of those conversations and share it with people. It's a privilege. Thank you, sir. Oh man, me too. And I got to the end without saying how much I love your first book and can't wait for the second. So <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't forget thank in the you, end. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll cut that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Leave it in. I appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, previous episodes you will also love is number 38, Chris Ho and Robert Hayes of Athena. We talk a lot about the leverage inherent in using EAs and personal helpers, investing in the corporation of you. A lot of the same themes, even though we're talking about people leverage there and not AI like we covered in this episode. And for operators, CEOs, company builders, also number episode number 28, with Janine Seidel talking about how people teams really help build companies, thinking through your HR function, when to start which pieces of the puzzle, and how to handle those challenges that come up on the people side of things as you scale your companies. I'll also remind you, accredited investors can invest in early stage companies alongside me and my partners in Rolling Fund. There's a link to more in the show notes. Our guest today, Sean, is actually an investor in the fund. We're very proud to serve him and entrepreneurs like him to get capital into world-class startups so they can focus on their very important day jobs. You can hire a talented team to build some very excellent software for you by using this episode's sponsor, Bread. Go to madebybread.com or click the link in the show notes to learn more about that. For a free way to support the show, please leave a quick review in your podcast player or text this episode to a friend or coworker you think would enjoy it or you tweet it. That works too. I'm so glad you enjoyed us. this. <laughs> I hope to put my words in your ears again soon. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage, and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, Go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage. Take a few quiet moments for yourself, breathe deep, and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617. 
the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.